Well, I don't normally begin my sermons with reading a quote from a book, but when I do, I read from Eugene Peterson, just because of how awesome he is. Such an amazing writer. I always encourage people to read him if you're looking for someone to read that is deeply spiritual. He tells a story in his book called The Pastor, which is a memoir of his life, about Garrison Johns, who was a bully in the neighborhood that he grew up in. This bully, Garrison, always wore a kind of red flannel shirt. If it was in the winter, summer, didn't matter. He lived in a kind of log cabin home with rusted out pickups and cars in his yard. And Garrison discovered Eugene Peterson in the first grade. He was a bigger boy, and Eugene became basically his project. That is, he would beat up Eugene every day, and Eugene's mom would tell him about what is the proper Christian response. And he felt that after dismissal every day from school, he somehow had to assimilate this beating and these bruises from Garrison as a blessing into his life somehow. And eventually he grew tired of it, and he tells this story. March came. I remember that it was March by the weather. The winter snow was melting, but there were still patches of it here and there. The days were getting longer. I was no longer walking home in the late afternoon dark. And then something unexpected happened. I was with my neighborhood friends on this day, seven or eight of them, when Garrison caught up with us and started in on me, jabbing and taunting, working himself up to the main event. He had an audience, and that helped. He always did better with an audience. That's when it happened. Totally uncalculated, totally out of character, something snapped within me. For just a moment, the Bible verses disappeared from my consciousness and I grabbed Garrison. To my surprise and his, I realized that I was stronger than he was. I wrestled him to the ground, sat on his chest and pinned his arms to the ground with my knees. I couldn't believe it. He was helpless under me. At my mercy, it was too good to be true. I hit him in the face with my fists. It felt good. And I hit him again. Blood spurted from his nose, a lovely crimson on the snow. By this time, all the other children were cheering, egging me on, black his eyes, bust his nose. A torrent of biblical invective poured from them, although nothing compared with what I would later in life read in the Psalms. I said to Garrison, say uncle. He wouldn't say it. I hit him again. More blood more cheering. Now my audience was bringing the best out of me, and then my Christian training reasserted itself. I said, say, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. (laughs) He wouldn't say it. I hit him again. (laughs) More blood. I tried again. Say, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And he said it. Garrison Johns was my first Christian convert. (laughs) Such a great story. Which raises the question, how are we to respond to the brokenness of others who inflict pain on our lives? 
without losing control, without responding in kind? How are we to remain Christian in conflict without baptizing our own brokenness, justifying it as the work of God's kingdom? How do we keep our Christianity from turning into just another way of saying uncle? Well, the answer to these questions all start with the cross. When the weight of the world is on our shoulders, we have to turn to him who took the weight of the world upon his shoulders. One of our children's ministry staff asked me this week, why is there a reading about the cross on Christ the King Sunday, which is today? That's a great question. If you've been around a while in this Anglican Episcopal tradition, you know that we follow the church calendar, and next Sunday begins Advent, the new liturgical year. So we've already gone through an entire liturgical year of Christmas and Epiphany and Lent and Holy Week and Easter and Pentecost and the story of the church unfolding before us through summer into the fall. And now we are at the end of the liturgical year. Shouldn't we be focused on Christ enthroned in heaven? Why the cross? Well, we cannot understand the God of Christianity without the cross. We cannot understand our true predicament without the cross. And ultimately, we cannot simply understand our hope without the cross. We cannot understand the God of Christianity without the cross. You see, ours is a religion that says, if you want to know what God looks like, look to the cross. Look to the cross. St. Paul writes, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. You see, our God is one who pours himself out for others like wine into a chalice. His love is poured into the broken cisterns of our lives. And so we cannot understand the God of Christianity without the cross. We also can't understand our true predicament without the cross. And so we hear the criminal crucified next to Jesus deride him saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Oh, the irony. If he only knew that this is precisely what Jesus is doing. But haven't we all had this response in some form? I mean, I have. God, if you're real, save us. Do something about this mess. And this raises all sorts of questions. Did Jesus really need to die? Was his blood really necessary? Couldn't God have just said, no sweat, and then pressed the relational reset button? The great American priest Richard John Newhouse wrote about St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City, which is directly across from Rockefeller Center. And if you were to stand at the entrance of Rockefeller Center, you would see the great sculpture of Atlas holding up the world on his shoulders. I'm certain many of you have seen this. Behold the great, it beckons. But on Good Friday, Newhouse reminds us the doors of the cathedral are opened. And you can see the great cross in the church from the street. Turn in one direction, and there is the mythical Atlas holding up the world on his shoulders. And turn in the other, and there is the one broken by the world. Which image speaks the truth? 
Is the world upheld by our God-like strength or by the crucified love of God? Upon that decision, everything, simply everything, turns. Atlas or Jesus, which reflects true kingly authority. It's part of the mystery of Christianity that it holds that in the cross, the good and the great meet, and in fact, are one and the same, thereby challenging our notion of greatness and authority and kingship. The stumbling block of the cross is that it proclaims that the world and indeed the entire cosmos are held not on the rippling, muscly shoulders of Atlas, but on the cross, on the ripped, broken, and bloody shoulders of the one who was nailed upon it. Here, greatness and goodness meet. God is their source. Children sing of this, don't they? God is great, God is good. Let us thank him for our food. By his hands we are fed. Give us, Lord, our daily bread. But strangely, the meal that he gives us is one that, as Paul reminds us, proclaims the Lord's death. Until he comes again. Is this great and good and holy? Is that authority? In fact, many have asked, if God is good, then why does he have to kill his son? Every parent knows this is off limits. Does God know less? I hope you know that. (laughs) To understand the cross, we can't think in terms of what God did to Jesus. We must think in terms of what God did in Jesus. And through Jesus, which is to say what God did to himself. In the cross, we do not see a God looking to appease his bloodthirst, a kind of divine child abuse. The judgment of God and the love of God are not different things. And we see this in the cross because the cross is not bloodthirst, it is love thirst, showing us the limits to which God will go to save us from ourselves. On the cross, We see a love-thirsty God swallowing up the sin of the world unto himself, even as we're invited to swallow up his living water, his blood poured from his side, his body that's pierced for us. He thirsts for us to thirst for him. And so he himself swallows up the bitterness of our brokenness, and he climbs up on that cross, taking the weight of the world, of our world, on his shoulders. Finally, we cannot know our ultimate hope without the cross. For the God who in Christ takes the weight of the world on his shoulders, he takes us up there with him. Our sin is nailed up there too. We have a share in his death by God's grace so that we might also have a share in his life which is stronger than death. The point of all of this is to say that truly Christ is king. He's a king not merely of economic success or justice rolling like a river or of bullies and boys who bloody each other's noses. No, this is the king over death too. And this truth, it it releases us from taking the weight of the world on our shoulders because we have eternity to get it all right. This is the only way our hearts will be transformed. When the weight of the world is on our shoulders, we must turn and look to him who took the weight of the world on his. You see, maybe like Eugene Peterson, you feel pinned down by someone or something. Maybe like Peterson, you've done the pinning. You've shed the blood. 
I know I have at points. The only way our minds will be renewed and kept from inflicting the ways of violence and death on others is through realizing that Christ the King has pinned down death and has made it say uncle. So even today, the cross of Christ beckons to us like a glass of wine at a wedding feast. Let your hair down, if you have any. Let go of the weight of the world. Let it go. Dance and celebrate the love of bride and bridegroom and rest in his embrace. Amen.